This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and with me in the cave tonight, we have Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood. Hello. And Paul Anthony Nelson. Hi. And I don't know if I said my name, did I? No. Sally Christie, you did. I did. I just want to say it twice. (laughs) And on tonight's show, we are discussing um, Stan and Ollie, the Laurel and Hardy. Excellent film that we saw. Hopefully, all well, saw. let's wait and see yeah, what yeah. we all say, Sally. We'll see. You're jumping ahead. Maybe I didn't <laughs> like it. Maybe I did. We are also looking at um, High Flying Bird. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, Steven Soderbergh. See Steven Soderbergh's latest, and Natalie Portman's new one, Fox Lux. I'm going to throw to you, Paul. Thank you, as I catch my breath. Uh, thank you, Sally, for uh, filling in there. Okay. Vox Lux, shall we? Shall we, uh, shall we take the stage? Okay. So actor-turned-director Brady Corbett's second feature, Vox Lux, is, depending on your point of view, either intriguingly or pretentiously subtitled, a 21st century portrait. And we do, indeed, start the film at the turn of the new millennium. Beginning with a chapter heading cheekily titled Genesis, we find ourselves in 1999 where a young Celeste, played by Rafi Cassidy, uh, barely survives a Columbine-style shooting in her high school music class. While convalescing from a serious neck and back injury, Celeste and her sister Eleanor, played by Stacey Martin, are always noodling around on keyboards and making, around, making up lyrics. Uh, they write a song about their post-traumatic experience, which they perform at the victim's memorial service, and it instantly captures the attention of the nation going viral before we called it such things. Soon, we're following Celeste. Oh, man, I'm sounding like Paul Schrader. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it's just... <laughs> I think we really should... I think we really should say to everyone that Paul... You have no idea how close it was for Paul. Just, he sat down just as the music was fading out and, and Sally started talking. So if you're thinking Paul's sounding a bit puffed, you're right. Little, he is feeling a little puffed. And Sh- Schrader-esque. Uh, thank you. I was just uh, doing my excellent Paul Schrader imitation. So uh, what did you think of the movie? And uh, first report... First Reformed should have won the best uh, Oscar. Anyway, yeah, in my in my head, First Reformed won seven Oscars, and the Oscars is a great place. Um, <laughs> back to Vox Lux. Uh, so yeah, so uh, it basically um, this song goes viral. Uh, soon we're following Celeste and Eleanor as they get a manager, played by a wonderfully scruffy and insouciant Jude Law, uh, as the former star grows and the latter is pushed slowly into the background. As the two sisters taste a life of worldwide travel and emerging fame far from their God-fearing home, their paths diverge. At this point, a new chapter heading titled Resurgence sees us leap 17 years into 2018, where Celeste, now played by Natalie Portman and one of the biggest pop stars on the planet, is preparing to play a massive concert in her Staten Island hometown where it all began. Her relationships with her manager, her sister, her publicist and her teenage daughter uh, always seem perched on a knife's edge of medicated moods and festering grudges. Now, I've been talking for minutes and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of this film. Sally, are you, an, are you a Celeste agnostic or did you find this phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love your, your opening questions, Paul. I'm not, I, 
I um, this movie was trying to do a lot of things. I think like it was very very busy, and I think it was a little too busy. I think um, and it didn't end up accomplishing anything that it wanted to. For me, I don't know if Natalie Portman's performance in this was excellent or terrible. I'm not sure yet what I think of it. Um, wow. Yeah. I was like, was that really shithouse or was it awesome? She I does a know. lot of acting, doesn't she's, she? She's like, she's so much really acting. Really dialed up the acting. Like, yeah, exactly. That was mm. it. There was just this. <laughs> yeah, she was acting. Um, so... I don't, I don't really know how I feel about it. I definitely, it was one of those films where I liked the first half of it a lot more than I liked the second half. Um, you liked the bit before Natalie Portman came and in. Pretty much, to be <laughs> okay. honest. And also, the first half I found quite surprising because I don't want to give too much of the film away, but it, it wasn't what I was expecting. And then the second half led into something that I was very much expecting the film to be, and I found the first half much more interesting. Hmm. Yes, it's interesting. Brady Corp, um, Brady Corbett, Childhood of a Leader. We did cover on this show last year. No, uh, two, three years ago. It's two, a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was his debut film, and that film, I can I can say uh, really quite confidently that he knows how to start a film. Let's just say he is very good at beginnings of films. Um, Childhood of the Leader was the same, and and I think he's found uh, a fantastic um, audio partner with Scott Walker as well. Uh, and uh, the the in, the title music to Childhood of the Leader was just sensational. Same here with Vox Lux. Really, really, really strong opening. He opens big, and then he has kind of this way of petering. I. I really look childhood of a leader as well as Vox Lux has a, so many components that I felt could go to brilliance and didn't quite get there. I think he's he he has capitalised on his filmmaking assets, should we say? <laughs> That's a really I don't know why I went all capitalist for a moment uh, with uh, Vox Lux. I think he's developing, but he's not quite there yet. I feel he's going to get there. I'm really excited to see him get there, um, but not quite yet. One of the main things that I felt was um, he does an interesting thing. He, he's uh, with his casting where uh, Rafi Cassidy plays, she is Natalie Portman as a teenager, and then she plays Natalie Portman's teenage uh, daughter in the second half. Um but I could not see the continuity between teenage Natalie Portman. I'm calling her Natalie Portman. I can't even remember what her character name was. Celeste. Celeste, of course. <laughs> um, uh, teenage Celeste to adult Celeste. It felt like they were completely different characters. I don't know what and was going on with the one direction was there. maybe better than the other. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, well even um, Celeste, adult Celeste's accent, wh- where did that come from? I don't quite know. But uh, you're right. At the start of this film, I felt really quite excited by it. I thought, um, this is going to be great. And then... Something happened. And he has a way of the films, and I won't ruin the end by any means, but they just... It just feels like he has... He doesn't build to anything much, and, and then it just sort of denouement. Um... He's definitely got a style of uh, voice that I can see that's come out uh, across these two films. 
maybe you guys, maybe um, Cerise, you can remind me. It did Childhood of a Leader have um, a narrator? Oh, I don't recall. But this is Willem Dafoe narrating this, is this one. This is Willem Dafoe, yes. Just after he narrated his own Van Gogh performance the other <laughs> week. It was very confusing seeing those two films in close proximity to one another. Um, Dafoe's not in this one, on screen at least. Um, but that, that narrows the voiceover, and this is quite obnoxious. It's quite redundant, really. Um, yeah, no, I wasn't sure why it was there. I wasn't sure. No, as if it, to, to give it some sort of quasi-documentary status mm. uh, as, as a narrative. But it's yeah, obviously not convincing. And, you know, it's Willem Dafoe, if you're familiar with his voice. Mm. It's quite distinctive. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I much preferred the first half of this film too. And, and weirdly drawing links between those these two recent Defoe narrative vo- voiceover films. Defoe the um, friend. There, 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 I yeah, back yeah. to last week's show. Yeah, there, there was something in... Uh, <laughs> what was it? At, at Eternity's Gate? Was that yes. the, Yeah. It was just last week. Yeah, sorry. well, I, yeah, I've seen a lot of other moving images in the meantime. Uh, there's something I, I love that Vox Lux did early on, which is give a, a, a really impressionistic... Um, portrayal of the passage of time and things happening and, and a flurry. Something that Eternity's Gate didn't. It tried to give a sense of um, Van Gogh's mental state by occasionally wobbling the camera and putting... <laughs> I believe I described yeah. this crew members throwing the camera to yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it really didn't didn't succeed as an impressionistic device. Um, those, those sort of strategies of, of just wobbling the camera and... and dividing it into ill-defined halves where one half went a bit wonky. I mean, that's pretty rubbish. But this really borrowed from the uh, sort of American avant-garde flicker film tradition of just an incredible flurry of uh, you know, many frames per second of changing images, just rapidity, great rapidity, and you couldn't possibly absorb all of those images. You just get impressions, and they fly by, and it's exciting, and there's action momentum. And you, you come out of that with an impression and you mm. think things have happened, time has passed and then we go into the boring second half of this film where it's just another diva who's setting herself up for uh, disgrace and um, family ructions and, uh, you know, the, it's such a familiar uh, mm. tale and um, seen it all before, a bit dull and then, you know, that, that sort of music also doesn't speak to me on any level. Equally, you know, the one real failing the first half had... I think in, in depicting a um, a teen musical subcultural um, uh, ent- uh, force that we well well know is you know this this kid who comes in and shoots up a classroom is just such a caricature emo goth dude and it's just a bit rubbish. Yeah, I, that was I had a really big gripe with that yeah. as well. It was like, come on, this is like having a you know a wacky uh, female character that has brightly coloured hair. This is boring. <laughs> yeah, you can do better. But than it this. was it was the yeah. Columbine. That's the thing. Yeah, it was yeah, very much yeah, mirroring. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, Columbine yeah. killers. Yeah. Yeah. without she, saying that, yeah. and yeah. it was actually touching on a whole lot of um, significant violent acts across the last I, 10, 15 years or whatever. Don't think that it was successful in really conveying that, or it just. Seemed, that seemed a bit blah. And it was a bit, glib. Yeah. And then when she meets up with someone who is of that world but a successful pop star and, and they have this inane little exchange about how she never thought she could be interested in such a person because surely his music just drives people to kill other people. I just think, <laughs> yeah, really, this is, this is missing a little bit of nuance. Just, mm. just a, a little. So... Um, <laughs> 
I think wow. there are things to admire in this film, but there are also things to disdain. This feels like opposite day. Normally, I'm the one. The middle you're half. The, of, you're the grumpy one, I, usually, yes, aren't you? Yes, normally I am. Um, <laughs> this time, though, okay, I it's like looking into like Bizarro World because I found the first half hour kind of a bit like I found the Columbine thing interesting, and then it was like, oh, we're just seeing the rise of a pop star. Okay, I don't care. This is this is really standard. Then all of a sudden, we once the manager comes on board from that point. I think it was about 35 minutes in till about an hour, 35 minutes in. That hour is my favourite film of 2019 so far. I thought it was awesome. I thought Natalie Portman was amazing. The... There's centerpiece scenes in there that I was just... When she dresses down her sister with certain politically incorrect epithets, I was just mesmerised. There's the the conversation with her daughter, the fact she's trying to... It's this whole sort of... She's lived in a bubble and trying to communicate, and yet her sister who could have... You know, it's, it's like... A star is born, gone wrong, gone putrid, and it's and the whole thing is kind of this. I think it is a real twenty first century portrait in a lot of ways, and a look at fame and a look at. Well, that's what it called itself, didn't it? It did. It, yes, it called yes, it shot. You know, yeah. pointed to the fence. Um, yeah, we've also had a, a documentary on a famous French footballer with a, a subtitle to twenty first century. Oh, portrait. Zidane. Zidane. Yeah. Zinedine Zidane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd watch that film. <laughs> Over this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As in, at the same time, I, superimposed. <laughs> Mash that up. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, I, I did I did find the music kind of underwhelming. It felt like it felt like uh, C has kind of reached into the third drawer and gone. You can have this stuff. The music was incredibly underwhelming, especially the um, the big sort of climax with him. I the- almost felt it should have ended, like when they were about to perform, because I loved yeah. all that ge- you know geeing up stuff, which I referred to yeah. in my introduction. Um, I loved all that. I loved her costume when she got out on stage, but then. It's interesting because oh, I've kind of read in a couple of places that the music is possibly meant to be a little underwhelming, and and the whole and there's a whole undercurrent of well, is Celeste deserving of all of this? Like she caught a moment, and she's been writing it ever since. Or is it just because we're old and the music doesn't speak to us? <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> that could be a possibility as well. <laughs> but I don't know. I just I think the, the dynamic between her, like her sister, was like the opposite to Sam Elliott in A Star Is Born. Like mm. Sam. Elliot was very, you know, he was there for his brother. He was very self-sufficient. And the minute they step on each other's toes, he's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go get work because I've worked with this giant star being my brother for all these years. I can get work anywhere. Whereas this character kind of just licked her wounds and sunk into the background and started looking after her daughter and just kind of moped about it. And it's kind of like it's an interesting kind of mirror to that. And I could sort of see both sides. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I found it. I love the style of it. I love Scott Walker's score. Mm. Um, I I loved Jude Law's kind of. I like that everyone's kind of doing a Staten Island kind of accent. Although I've got to say, one of the things that annoyed me in the first half hour was young Natalie Portman. I liked her much more as the daughter. Because when she was doing young Natalie Portman, she seemed to be doing a Natalie Portman in Jackie voice. And the whole time she sort of talked like this, like she's <laughs> well, Jackie O'Nassie. I really didn't see the continuity of voice or and anything. And that was why, because, yeah. like, then Natalie Portman shows up and she's full Staten Island. And it's like, well, why the hell have you let this young actress just watch Jackie a bunch of times to do her voice study? Like, <laughs> it just seemed, it was really distracting. And it was one of the things that was kind of poking me in the eye. So once Natalie took the wheel and started on with her sort of interpretation, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in for the ride here. But I like, I, I don't know, I like the ambition of it. I like the pretentiousness of it. I like that it's sort of, it's like, 
I don't know. Brady Corbett, I think he could be in for big things. He he reminds me of a a, a less cohesive Xavier Dolan. Mm. Like like mm. Xavier Dolan is so much more mature and cohesive, but equally as kind of pretentious and grand and young and precocious. And Delan's the version I, I like better. Don't make any mistake. But I did, yeah, I, I think Corbett's got some game and I well, this really is only this. this is only his second film, so I think there's some... And he is trying for a different type of uh, narrative voice. We'll give it to him to have ambition and trying to do something unique. So I think he's he hasn't really hit the mark yet, but mm. he let, let's watch him. Let's watch him. And He'll do more. He will do more. Uh, one thing I <laughs> out as well is just that I liked her struggling with the interview process and how her publicist and her manager were like, no, you need to be guarded, you need to say anything, but speak from the heart, which, I mean, God, just describes celebrities' relationship with social media, celebrities, like, it's like this whole 21st century, like, kind of climate where you're meant to be extremely guarded but completely authentic and it's like, well, something's got to give somewhere Mm -hmm. and I like the way the film portrayed that tension mm, mm. as well. I wonder if that will come up again when we discuss High Flying Bird shortly. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you're intrigued by uh, that debate, listeners, uh, Vox, Lark is, Vox Larks is screening at all good independent cinemas. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to take a trip to the British seaside, uh, join a couple of gents, one lean, one portly, on the British theatre circuit of the 1950s as we look at the biopic Stan and Ollie. Now, Stan, opening at the prime of their career in 1937, comedy megastars Stan Laurel, Steve Coogan and Oliver Hardy, John C. Reilly, have reached a crossroads with their famed director Hal Roach, played by Danny Houston. Laura wants to be paid what they're worth. Hardy is afraid to ask for it, resulting in Stan running off to Fox, hoping Ollie would join him, but instead finds himself left adrift as Oliver makes Zenobia, forever derided as that elephant movie, (laughs) for Hell Roach without him. Sixteen years later, their movie careers on the decline, Laurel invites Hardy to join him for a tour of the British theatre circuit leading to London, all to drum up some interest and finance for another picture together. One last shot. A smarmy manager, a less-than-ideal hotel, and several small yet still half-empty theatres later, Laurel and Hardy begin to realise that maybe they're yesterday's news. Begrudgingly, they agree to a series of silly publicity stunts that actually boosts their sales and all is sent for a triumphant arrival in London where their wives, Ida and Lucille, and, all going well, a producer will meet them. But will it be triumphant or another cruel reminder of the new world they now find themselves in? Cerise, did you have a pleasant journey with Stan and Ollie or was this another fine mess they got you into? I, uh, well... <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, I think this is an incredibly sweet film that took a while to win me over. I found it really slow to to um, put, to put really apply the charm offensive, but it, uh, that's kind of to its credit. It, it, it invested in character. I mean, we might think we know Laurel and Hardy, but we just know their screen personas. And as, as embodied here by John C. Riley in some sort of fat suit type thing and Steve Coogan with a pair of comedy ears attached, <laughs> um, they, are, they are extremely um, charming, if slightly roguish when we first meet them. We understand they've, they've each churned through a couple of wives and some, they've got some um, bad habits, but nothing really scandalous, not the sort of stuff that ruined careers 
of the likes of, say, Fatty Arbuckle, other silent <laughs> era <laughs> <Rotless> bottles stars <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, Rotless so rapey. Yeah. yeah. There, you said it. Yeah, no, these two are, are really very lovable and gentle characters and uh, the film is gentle, almost seemingly too gentle until somehow magically it just totally got through my defences and I found myself actually weeping through this film at regular intervals. It just it just played me somehow and that's not because um, I was necessarily weeping with laughter, though occasionally I was, but many of those routines as, as re-enacted, famous Laurel and Hardy routines, sometimes on the set of a, a film during a shoot or sometimes just paid homage and little actions within the narrative. Um, some of them just seem incredibly twee and too gentle, but others still very funny. But then I actually watched some original clips again just recently to remind myself that I actually really do like Laurel and Hardy and found original clips just hilarious. So, um, you know, what this film really needed and got was actually another double act and the wives. The wives totally ran off with this film. Um, uh, so Shirley Henderson and uh, an actress unknown to me previously, Nina Arianda. Do we know her? She's from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't like, recognise her from that. But Did um, she not have a, a comedy Eastern European accent in that one? She did. the Russian accent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah th- those two women are so wonderful in this film, both as comical creations in their own right, but ultimately their relationships with their comic partners here and the Laurel and Hardy partnership under duress played for a lot of pathos and that pathos really pays dividends to put things in a capitalist framework again why does this keep coming up this <laughs> don't know this what's going I don't on. know <laughs> I don't know but we're gonna like violate the community radio yeah. charter at yeah. some point we'll yeah. eventually get a return on our investment with this hush now uh, <laughs> The other thing I, I really enjoyed about this film is how casually steeped it is in Hollywood lore. So there are a lot of references there that um, if you do a little bit of homework or you're just yourself steeped enough in, um, in Hollywood history, you'll catch little mentions, allusions to others in the industry. You'll know that Hal Roach was a very important comedy figure. He's named explicitly a few times and we meet him and he's played as a bit of an ogre. It's probably a bit rough on the real guy. Maybe not, I don't know. But, but we... Um, uh, Laurel a number of times casually calls Hardy babe, which I seems know. like quite a... a but a, others a, do as well. Well, that's right. He mm. was actually billed very early on as uh, Babe Hardy. It was mm. part of his, um, it was a, his nom de uh, stage uh, at, <laughs> at some point early on in his career. There's just all these little touches like that, though, that really actually touched my heart nonetheless that he got to be babe. I, I, this, is, this is such a love story. It's Laurel and Hardy, the love story. This is a <laughs> Cerise, listening to you speak, it's like you read my notes. Have I, you just I taken just my notes? I was just about to say Cerise scooped everything out yes, of my head that exactly. I wanted to say about this. Did you this cry? Is a cra- yes, I had that in my notes too. I had a... a well, that's Stan and Ollie, everyone. Thanks yeah. very yeah, much, thank Cerise. Bye. <laughs> that's all, folks. Did you cry like Laurel does? I look, I cried like I watched... Uh, so sort of scratching was, your head weirdly yeah, in, a, mm, in an... Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 That, that was a visual radio thing <laughs> right there. That was gold. That, that was, was gold. Uh, radio gold. Um, yeah, I said that I, I cried like when I saw uh, film stars don't uh, die in Liverpool. And it made me think... Um, I, I, I have a thing for Hollywood nostalgia, so um, that's always going to get to me, especially when it's done well. I, I wonder whether this would actually resonate with... Um, 
someone who doesn't have a knowledge of Laurel and Hardy, I wonder if it would have the same impact. Because the audience when I was there were definitely of a certain age group, shall we say. Say of a vintage. Of a certain vintage, (laughs) yes. They were like fine wines. Um, Pickled. So, yeah, (laughs) pickled. (laughs) <laughs> they were like they weren't onions, Cerise. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it did make me wonder whether it was just because I knew I knew of Laurel and Hardy, and I had a history with Laurel and Hardy. Shall I say that I, I liked it? That's just I, I I don't know. That's just something I that I'm putting out so. there. I, I think having Steve Coogan and John C. Riley as the leads in this film, I am a big fan of both of them, and I was very excited to see this film. Because they were playing Laurel and Hardy. So that mm. was a really big draw card for me. Mm. Um, my knowledge of Steve Coogan and John C. Riley is a lot better than my knowledge of Laurel and Hardy. Laurel Hardy, yeah. So that was, that was a huge draw card for me. Yep. They did have excellent rapport. Mm-hmm. Um, I did write, actually, in my notes just to uh, reinforce what Sari said, sweet by name, sweet by nature, I said, because Stan and Ollie is just such a sweet little name to put to this film. And it, it, and it's the innocence about it. Like, there's just nothing nasty, actually. It, you know, really, they kind of, if you... If someone else wanted to present it in a different way, you could say they were Lotharios. But no, they're sort of hopeless romantics in this, you know. And you could say they're alcoholics and gamblers. But no, they're rapscallions in this, you know. Uh, so it, it's just a... And the love affair, what Cerise was saying about the love affair, it's not just the love affair between them and their their partners, but it's the love affair with showbiz and it's a love affair between the two of them. Um, it's just one of the... The most romantic films I've seen for quite some quite some time. It's also um, the the thing that Cerise mentioned about the wives running away with this film. I thought that was wonderful that it wasn't just this wife role or wives role that they got to play. And also, interestingly enough, there was a quite an amount of diversity in these secondary characters, which were often women in the service industry in the UK, um, which I thought was quite intriguing. You wouldn't usually see that in a, in a film of this nature. Um, so there was quite a bit of depth behind behind um, John C. Riley's and um, Steve Coogan's performances. It wasn't just about them alone, although their performances were really beautiful. And I thought Steve Coogan, especially when he would go into the Laurel on stage persona versus Laurel off stage, it was a very pronounced change. And um, so he was in fe- he was in effect playing two Stan Laurels, which was he did very well. And I thought he really sold it incredibly well. And not only that, but this beautiful Art Deco stage design and um, I, I put a note of great ties, great trains, great Art Deco. <laughs> it was a re- yeah, it was really a sweet and beautiful and gentle film to watch on a Sunday afternoon. Um, like I said, I was excited to see this film and exactly what Cerise was saying before, how it really crept up on me. The first maybe 40 minutes, I wasn't so sure. And then I think it was when the wives came into it was that I became really very sold in this film and I became quite emotionally invested in the characters of Laurel and Hardy and I think that's when a lot of their emotional development came along was from their wives and they were absolutely fantastic and I think that everybody I've spoken to that's seen this says they stole the show. But, yeah, it was just a really beautiful, sweet, gentle film and I also like 
I love how they talked a bit about how they investigate what stars used to do when their contracts at studios had run out. Like, um, I think it was the Tab Hunter documentary where he's talking about how he went into... Oh, Tab Hunter Confidential. Confidential, yep. yeah, that came out a couple of years ago at the Queer Film Festival where he was talking about once his contracts had run out, he would go and he worked in theatres and, the um you know... What, what do you, I'm, I'm think lost the Vaudeville? word. Not Vaudeville. No. no, no. I'm thinking like Dracula. <laughs> oh, theatre restaurants. Yeah, dinner theatre. Yeah, 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 dinner theatre. Dinner theatre. Thank you. Um, and, yeah, just what they would do to stay afloat once these, these studios had said, no, we don't want you anymore, that's it, your careers are done. But, you know, you still need to have an income. And I like the way that that was looked at in this film, but, yeah, in a very sweet way and not in a way that, yeah, it could have it could have been. Mm. Okay. Uh, Triple R's new favourite superhero, Captain Contrarian, is back. You're a monster, Paul. I thought this was really dull. Uh, um, you have no soul. Oh god, it's, it, it felt. I'm sorry. I, I apologise. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe a word of it. The whole thing just seems so. It's funny you were talking about the Art Deco production design. It all looked and felt like a set. It's I like that the, about yes, it. Oh, no, pulled me right. At you, but what to what purpose? Like. It like stand like hard to be a movie because they're movie about stars. real people. Like, and then yeah. we want to get to know real people. And I don't like if I want the movies, I can see the movies. Look, I will preface this out like I, other than the little shorts that used to play on ABC when I was a kid. Like, I haven't seen a lot of Laurel and Hardy. I know them in the way that pop culture knows them, but I've never really seen anything other than their short, some of their shorts. So I, I don't go into this as a Laurel and Hardy kind of aficionado, but obviously I'm aware of the world and I know who Hal Roach is and I know what. You know, but I just I couldn't believe the world. It was one of those movies that writes characters as if like I've seen them on film, so that's the way they must act in real life. So Hardy is like in real life arguments, going mm, doing that sort of on screen Hardy thing, and it's like I'm sure he didn't do that for real in serious conversations with human beings. Um, and but did uh, you think that Stan? See, Stan Laurel, I felt had really had his screen persona, or, or the way yes, Steve Coogan portrayed it. Absolutely. As, was very yeah. there was as you said before there's mm. that de- uh, demarcation between that was which was quite nice um i felt uh, i i, I just I, uh, when ida arrived though i will agree with you on that ida was amazing she was like like defibrillator paddles to the heart of this movie like whenever she was in it it just <laughs> roared alive um i love a truculent russian what can i say um she was wonderful um, and hilarious and every line landed um, I see and I felt Shirley Henderson who's a wonderful actress I just felt like her character really was that hen-pecking wife character kind of over, like overprotective and and just kind of felt uh, like I was not nearly as interested in, in that dynamic. I was much more interested in Stan and Edith. It was when I think the wives were together, they were playing off each other, but the two of them separately, like, yes. I don't know, Edith, she was excellent all the, all the time in the film. But, um, yeah, it was when they were together that they were a real powerhouse, I think. There is a lovely moment between them. I think it like not to spoil anything, but there is a moment that actually did catch me a bit off guard. And it's like something Eda does, and I was like, oh. And that was probably the most emotional feeling I had through the entire film. Um, yeah, all the Stan and Ollie stuff, it just felt a bit like cosplay. I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with cosplay? <laughs> <laughs> Cosplay is great when it's at a convention, <laughs> making okay. a feature film. Watch um, 
Oh, <laughs> phone's going to start ringing. Oh, look at it. I'm just going to... Oh, no. I'm my, my one complaint yeah. about this film <laughs> was um, John C. Riley's face, he was 61, his... Um, the prosthetics were too smooth. Yes. He needed yeah. some more wrinkles in it. He was looked like he'd been, he was full of Botox, you know? Almost like they just copied it from a, you know, a, in his prime Laurel and Hardy movie. Yeah. That's like his expressions. <laughs> um. <laughs> You're really I, tough. I know. I just, I don't know. I just, I really wanted to like this because I'm, I'm a huge fan of Steve Coogan and I'm a huge fan of John C. Riley and, and Shirley Henderson. And, and, and it's just, I really, really wanted to love this and I just could, it felt like, a senior, like that seniors movie, you know, the movie that plays, uh, uh, you know, at Nova at 10 a.m. and it's packed out on a Monday. Like, this is what that film is. And those films have a place, and I'm absolutely for that. But I thought Stan and Ollie, a little more interesting. I don't know. I just didn't think it needed that treatment. I, I would have liked to have gone a little deeper. Having said that, the performances are fine. There's some fun stuff in here. And, and as you say, if, if you're a Laurel and Hardy aficionado, you probably get a lot out of it. I just didn't myself. Mm. I you're a monster. <laughs> this reflects very poorly upon you. <laughs> Aren't you glad you threw the keys I to me? I can't believe Cerise hasn't said, uh, you're just wrong. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. I would never. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> There's no right or wrong here. Just shades of rightness and wrongness. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> See, if you called me wrong, I just would have replied, mm. <laughs> Stan and Ollie is screening now at all good independent cinemas. Three triple. Now, the final film of this evening is High Flying Bird, which uh, is the new direct-to-Netflix film by once-retired filmmaker Steven Soderbergh, uh, who... This is his third long-form work in 18 months, um... After uh, Mosaic and Logan Lucky. Uh, this features the great Andre Holland as Ray Burke, a sports agent to several high-profile NBA basketball players who finds himself at a crisis point when the league's bosses and team owners are locked in a dispute that leads to a lockout, meaning that all games and league activity are suspended until they sort it out. Uh, the only victims in this are the players who don't get paid until the lockout ends and the fans who go without their favourite game while corporate bigwigs hold back sponsorship dollars. But Ray feels like he might have a way around this and we follow him over a 36-hour period, 48-hour period as he scrambles to do all sorts of deals and exploit some of his players and other players he wishes to represent as well, all in an aim to possibly end the lockout or maybe kick basketball to a new non-corporate level. Emma, was High Flying, ba- <laughs> was High Flying Burton a slam dunk for you or was it a big fat <laughs> rebound? <laughs> Well, I confess, when I sat down to watch this, it started and I went, oh, oh, hang on, hang on, and I put on the subtitles. <laughs> I did the same thing. Did you? I did the exact same thing. This yes. is very, very talky and very, very fast talky. I did too. You did? To admit, yeah. You did as well. Yeah. Okay. That makes me feel better because <laughs> uh, I actually had to start it again. I was like, oh, oh hang on. Oh, oh. Very Sorkinese, mm. I, I would say. Um, was the that dialogues. the language they were speaking? Yes, yeah, Sorkinese, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Sorkinese written by Terrell, uh, uh, Terrell, Elvin. Uh, Chantrell? 
Oh, I'm, I'm going to mess up his yeah, surname. I want to say McCartney, but it's not McCartney. McCraney. Thank you. Sorry. Terrell Elvin McCraney, who uh, was Co-wrote. the playwright behind Moonlight. Moonlight, And yes. is co-wrote the screenplay with Barry Jenkins. So him yes. kind of emerging as this kind of Sorkinese voice is very interesting. Yeah, and it was very, very fast and very, you know, pithy and witty. I'll give, I'll give it that. Um, uh, I, there was something about this, though, uh, that I felt... Was it the subject matter that left me cold? I, I, I have no interest really in the, the the mechanics, the politics of basketball lockouts or whatever. So it it didn't. It was never going to grab me at that level. But saying that, I have gone into a number of films where I think I will have no, absolutely no interest in the subject matter, and the, the filmmakers have been able to win me over. This was not the case. I felt it sort of was. Um, there was no great payoff in the narrative. Uh, I knew what it was kind of leading to and it wasn't... Um, it didn't have very a lot of strength in, in where it was going uh, or the way that they portrayed it. And it was so, kind of slightly smug. It was kind of just had this... I don't know, a bit too cool for school sort of feel about it. But I I decided to read a little bit more about it because I do find it intriguing to see Steven Soderbergh, who's the director who's made more films than uh, anyone beyond their retirement, let's just say. (laughs) He's he's just completely powering them out. And I read it. I, I actually encourage people to read it. It was a fantastic article in Vulture that... I found much more interesting than the film itself. And just to see how this film was made, another iPhone shot film, the same as Unsane, which was the last film Soderbergh uh, released. I think it's the last one. He <laughs> keeps on releasing films all the time. Wait, you blinked. There might be another one. There might be another Yes. He's just cut another one. I mean, he was cutting this on his Mac, medium-sized MacBook Pro on the train or something like that. Yeah, the the car on the way home. On the way yeah. home and things. It was just, you know, it's an amazing story to see how this came together. And um, sometimes I think... I think maybe if this film had a little bit more time, if they maybe thought it through a little bit more, it would be a better film. I think that there was a lot of good intention behind it and a lot of talent. Um, yeah, maybe it was made a little bit too fast. Um, I I agree, Emma. Paul, you're probably going to love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought this was incredibly dull. Um, it just was going nowhere for me. Again, I'm not into sports films, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to go into it with an open mind. But, yeah, wasn't a fan of the high-flying bird at all. Uh, I I did find it interesting how he is, you know, working on iPhones. I think that's great that that medium's being used and that young filmmakers can see that, you know, you can get a film out there just with what you have. Um, So I'm all for that. I'm I'm championing that, but... Didn't, didn't love High Flying Bird. Didn't love it. Did you see this, series? I did see it. And I was won over and I went into this thinking, oh. I'm not going to care one jot about this. And it opens with testimony from people I presume are actual basketballers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and that set me up uh, completely um, for a different sort of film than it proved to be. Just at intervals, we, we get testimony from, I presume these are these were rookies of the year mm-hmm. in there. They are. Yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're the real deal. Yes. Yeah, uh, this has screwball comedy speed dialogue. I didn't really pick up the Sorkinese thing so much as just casting my mind back to 30s rapid-fire dialogue in uh, 
you know, I think of a classic like His Girl Friday or something like that, except this wasn't about gender, but it was very much about race. And this is a this smuggled in a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting revolutionary uh, black power politics into um, a film about sport, uh, which was extremely illuminating for me because I ha- haven't ever really given much thought to what powers base- basketball, but it's never escaped my attention that the most um, celebrated players in that game are African-American. And this, uh, this film ties in with an awful lot of that's been in uh, the conversation, broadly speaking, in the last few years and including in cinema and on this show, if we think of films like The 13th, uh, films that tie in slavery with contemporary exploitation of black people in the United States. And here, this, this film really actually cast, really illuminates the game behind the game. There, there was a term like that mm-hmm. that kept coming yep. up in this and about how there have been a lot of white folk still manipulating all the black folk uh, and making the real fortunes out of this sport and at great risk to these young people whose careers probably be very short. This coincided, just actually watching this, with um, some sort of tragic uh, accident on the court to a young up-and-comer. I just saw this, this just quite coincidentally made the news that um, a Nike... Uh, tragedy for Nike. Oh, just imagine their um, their, their shoe, one of their shoes broke underfoot of oh, somebody wow. and hobbled them. This rising star and the, uh, shares dropped by millions and and people, uh, you know, terrible PR and terrible for this young man. And and this all is just just of the moment. There's something very zeitgeisty about this film. If if it grabs you, I guess, because <laughs> it's still got to get through that yeah. thing of do I care about basketball? But I think there are much bigger things at play in this film and i found it actually really illuminating and that's that script this guy he's good yeah he's real good i 100 percent agree i'm glad somebody else liked this um yeah i i just quickly i yeah i agree with pretty much everything you said there uh i love the pace of this i think soderbergh is one of the best editors working merit sorry marianne bernard is one of the best editors working today um i love the pace of this i'm i'm I am very interested in backroom dealings of behind sport and the the mechanism. Like, have you seen Moneyball? I have. I have. Yeah, yeah. I like Moneyball. I, yeah. yeah, and that's written by Sorkin as well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and and so yeah, I really that married that world married with the great rapid fire dialogue married with the um, the amazing Andre Holland, who I just love and would watch in anything. Um, I would, yeah, I, I just really, I fell for this. I think the one, the one thing for me is that something you mentioned before, I think Emma, that you, um, you kind of know where it's leading. Like I, I was kind of on to what Ray's scheme was before he got there. And I think that was the only, that slightly lets the tires out of the ending a bit. Other than that, I loved going along with this. I love the patter between the characters. I love so- um, Sonia Sohn as one of the owners. She's fantastic. I know, from The from Wire. From The Wire, yeah. Uh, she is wonderful. So good. Mm. Um, yeah, I just really, really, uh, yeah, no, I really got into this film. It was really cool. Just, and and it, But I can see how it can kind of distance certain people. It might be an acquired taste. There was um, Cerise mentioned that the little real life interviews with rookies of the year and everything that was apparently something that was put in after the fact that one of um, Soderbergh's friends suggested, and I think that was a really important addition. He acknowledged that himself that it kind of created uh, um, it just brought it so much more into the real world, 
which I would definitely agree. I think that to lose that would have um, created a very different viewing experience. Absolutely. Mm. High Flying Bird is now streaming on Netflix. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3 R with Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, uh, Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed Vox Lux and Stan and Ollie, which are screening at all good independent cinemas, and High Flying Bird, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Next week, we are going to be uh, calling The Guilty, uh, the Danish one man in a room on a phone thriller. We are going. Uh, in, uh, we're going to rob something with. Uh, is it Den of Thieves? King, King, King of, of Thieves. thieves. Yeah. And our third film is Greta. Greta, of course, yes, it is the Neil Jordan film. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, thank you for listening to another Plato's Cave. Uh, I'm Paul Anthony Nelson. Thank you, Cerise. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Major Paul Anthony Nelson. And thank you, Sal. Thank you. I feel like I haven't got anything witty to add. But <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and join us next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.